0: listen, I don't want to make fun of a stroke victim. I don't want to make jokes about an old man with dementia. I don't want to laugh at some poor woman whose only job qualifications are a hairstyle and a talent for mendacity. Unfortunately, that accounts for pretty much the entire Democrat party. And while I don't want to make fun of them, someone has to. So let's get started. As the midterm campaign season nears its close, Americans are preparing for Election Day when the free people of a great nation turn out to weep for what used to be a great nation when they were free people. Democrats, who run all three branches of government and are therefore to blame for this dumpster fire, have been working to bring their campaign messaging to a perfect balance of subtle distortions and outright lies. Their first strategy was to talk endlessly about the Capitol kerfuffle on January 6th that idea failed, however, when voters decided that a lunatic in a Viking hat running through Congress smearing the walls with excrement was actually doing a better job than the people who were usually there. Since then, Democrats have resorted to telling the electorate, sure, we tanked the economy, turned your cities into crime-ridden hellholes, and threw the rule of law out the window. But at least we're in favor of sexually mutilating children and slaughtering babies. Anything more than that would be too much of a good thing. Now, in the Pennsylvania Senate race, for instance, stroke victim and funny-shaped head guy John Fetterman and TV doctor Mehmet Oz are running neck and bizarre goiter to the finish as Fetterman tries to drive home his campaign slogan, I'm tan, rested, and have no idea where I am. After their recent TV exchange, the mainstream media was unanimous in saying Fetterman had turned in the finest debate performance by a man in a vegetative state in the history of medical emergencies. President and venal houseplant Joe Biden also chimed in on the debate in a private conversation with the cover of Britney Spears' first album, saying, quote, Everyone says Fetterman is speaking gibberish. Like, that's a bad thing. But his debate performance reminded me of that time I told Corn Pop, listen, a car in the balloon is worth an elephant on the head of a pin. Then I hit him with a roll of barbed wire I'd gotten from my many, many black friends who liked to stroke the hair on my leg because it was so soft and shiny. That's why I'll vote for Fetterman if it turns out I live in Pennsylvania, unquote. In New York, unelected Governor Kathy Hochul swore that she would fight crime to the very last hour before Election Day and then return to the policies that caused the crime in the first place and up yours. The effect of these remarks has been to narrow her race with Lee Zeldin, a man so obscure he had to check Wikipedia to find out who he was. And in the Michigan governor's debate, Governor and uber ubersturmfuhrer Gretchen von Wittmer defended her policy of locking the state's entire population in their bathrooms during the pandemic, saying it was important to cut down on traffic so she could visit her family more easily. When those remarks were greeted with anger, von Wittmer started screaming, help, I'm being kidnapped, and was carried off the debate stage by two FBI agents wearing MAGA hats and T-shirts reading, I Mugged Jussie Smollett. Now, to be fair, there's also been some trouble on the right especially after the artist formerly known as Kanye West went on an ugly anti-Semitic rant. Adidas, a company literally founded by and named after a member of Hitler's Nazi party, and no, I'm not making that up, dropped ye as a sponsor, saying, quote, this level of anti-Semitism is unacceptable, unquote. And come to think of it, I'm not exactly sure what they meant by that. Anyway, because Kanye knows Candace Owens, and Candace Owens' works for Ben Shapiro, journalists are now insinuating that Ben Shapiro is one of the worst anti-Semites ever to put on a yarmulke. Every morning, apparently, Ben looks in the mirror and says it's you rotten Jews who make a fortune by controlling the media. Which, okay, in Shapiro's case happens to be true, but that other crazy thing about Jews aiming a space laser at Earth, well, okay, Shapiro's doing that too. So maybe we should just vote for the guy in the Viking hat. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are ringing also singing, hunky dunky Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty-zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hooray, hooray. Oh, hooray, hooray.
1: I call them
2: reality deniers because they are completely on planet crazy and we want off.
0: (laughs) Planet crazy. That was Arizona MAGA gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake. And she is so right. The Democrats have gone completely insane. And the, the comparison between them and the rest of the country is amazing. We'll take a look at that and also at how corrupt the Department of Justice and the FBI has become. And, of course, what Elon Musk has to do with it. This is a good time to subscribe to my personal YouTube channel, the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, where you will get exclusive content shipped directly to you in a, an unmarked box so your neighbors will not know uh, what is coming to your house if you just tap that little bell, uh, and that will also take care of your neighbors as well. Um, and if you leave a comment, and the comment is peculiarly racist and particularly hateful in some way, we'll probably read it on the show because that's the kind of content we're looking for. Uh, today's comment is from American Guys, who says, how do I worship Andrew Claven without making myself look weird? Or should I gladly endure the humiliation, knowing that one day I may be able to kiss the feet of the great Andrew Clavin himself? Yeah, that's it. It's B. The answer is B. Endure the humiliation. Uh, don't worry about looking weird. Uh, you already look weird. So this will just, you'll look weird and now be kissing my feet, which that's kind of disgusting, actually. Forget the whole thing. You know, if it weren't for politicians campaigning, this would be one of the most beautiful times of the year. It's a crazy time, too, a wonderful time when school starts up again. Uh, Many of us will be traveling. I've been traveling for two weeks. I haven't been home for two weeks. When you're busy, when you're traveling, you want to feel safe. That's why Daily Wire has decided to team up with Ring. With Ring security products, you can rest assured your home and family will be safe when you're not there. The Ring video doorbell notifies you when guests or packages arrive. Ring's indoor cams are a great way to keep an eye on kids and pets when you're not there. Ring alarm will alert you if any motion is detected while the house is empty. Plus, if you add smart lighting around your home, you can turn lights on or off while you're away or link your lights to select Ring video doorbells and security cameras so they shine when motion is detected. Head to Ring.com to find out how you can live a little more stress-free this season with a Ring product that's right for you. That's Ring.com. The sequel to When Christmas Comes, A Strange, strange Habit of Mind, is now available. This is Cameron Winter, the hero of When Christmas Comes, is in a life-and-death battle of wits with a social media billionaire whose opponents get canceled permanently. The first Amazon reviews... Which, no matter what Shapiro says, I did not write. They say, th- I'm just reading little excerpts from the first reviews that are just coming in. The first book in this series was so good, I wasn't sure Clavin could surpass it. He did. Cameron Winter is one of the great crime protagonists on a par with Philip Marlowe, James Bond, and any contemporary protagonist. High action and deep philosophy woven together masterfully. I meant to savor this book for a couple of weeks. Instead, I ended up reading it in one sitting. You do not have to pre-order it anymore. You can just order it, and it will come right to your door. Go on Amazon. It helps to move the thing up the rank. If you can't stand Amazon, there are other places, obviously, Barnes & Noble, uh, that you can get it. You know, I had a friend, a conversation with my friend Christian Toto, you know, the guy who does uh, Hollywood and Toto, and he asked me why, after a long career, I finally found a character that I wanted to write a series around. Because I've never written a series, I've written trilogies, but I've never written a series. And I was talking to him about the fact that the great crime stories of the last 20 years, most of them have been on TV, uh, The Shield, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, they're all about antiheroes. And I've been talking on the show about the fact that I feel that the culture is looking for heroes. It's looking to figure out how do you portray a good man. And it's very difficult to do, especially uh, in a world where people don't wanna see women portrayed as good women because the the feminists get offended. And the thing about uh, Cameron Winter, and I didn't invent him for this reason, I invented him for the When Christmas Comes story, but I realized that he is in fact an anti-hero because of his past, which you get to hear a lot about in A Strange Habit of Mine. He's an anti-hero, Trying to become a hero. And that to me is an incredibly compelling story. Very says a lot about, uh, you know, the time that we're in and the culture that he's in, which is essentially this culture, a culture of an America going into decline. But there's something else too. And I, there was a headline in The Federalist the other day, and it said, it's time to save literature from the woke publishing industry. And it quotes a writer uh, named Alex Perez, who's talking about the fact that the industry is run by women, and especially uh, a certain kind of woke women. And he says, these women, perhaps the least diverse collection of people on the planet, decide who is worthy or unworthy of literary representation. And this, I have to tell you, is entirely true. My publisher, Mysterious Press, has been attacked repeatedly for publishing stories about white men. And so this is kind of like the remnant, the remnant of things that are being snuck through into a publication, because you're going to see less and less of it unless the woke monopoly is broken. Now, Because I am who I am and because I say the things I say, I am never going to win another literary award. I've won a a handful of high literary awards in my field, and I've been nominated for every literary award in my field. I'm never going to win another literary award because of who I am, and I'm obviously never going to get one of those career-making reviews in the New York Times uh, that are so important to people. But I know how good these books are, and if I can get them into the hands of a lot of people who love them, if 20% of this audience buys A Strange Habit of Mine. It will be on the bestseller list, and that will be all the prize I want. And that's not why I'm asking you to buy the book. I'm asking you to buy the book because I know you are going to love this book. I don't regret my life. I chose this life. I'm happy to pay the price for it. It's been worth it every step of the way. However, I want you to buy the book, A Strange Habit of Mine, because you're going to love it. And while you're doing that, you will also be helping to reform an industry desperately in need of reform. Now, this has been a tragic, tragic week. Elon Musk, has become, as he says, the chief twit. He has taken over Twitter Uh, He's fired its top executives. He's taking the company private. He sent out a tweet saying, free the bird, which I hope means, we all hope means he will allow uh, true villainous reprobates, people who should be in prison like Jordan Peterson uh, and the Babylon Bee who dare to make that Babylon Bee is the second funniest uh, site on the internet. Uh, They're the second funniest people on the internet. Uh, And, you know, obviously making jokes about the left wing agenda is as criminal as it can be. And it's a tragic thing that they might be no longer censored, and even the former president of the United States may be able to speak his mind on Twitter, Donald Trump, uh, and that is something, uh, you know, instead of enforcing the ideas of the elite by silencing everybody else, uh, this is just a terrible, terrible thing, and the left is taking it very hard. There is an article, uh, this is an unbelievable article, in a subreddit called Society and Culture, and the writer echoes a recent op-ed on Knucklehead Row, the opinion page of the New York Times, a former newspaper. That op-ed was titled, Free Speech is Killing Us. I'm not making this up. The subreddit Society and Culture says this, and this is not a signed article. I couldn't find the author, so we'll just attribute it to the site. Elon bros are killing us with free speech. I want to be cruel, but the mods won't let me is their best argument for free speech. The days since the announcement of Elon Musk taking over Twitter have been surreal for me. I've alternately bawled my eyes out and wallowed in an almost comatose state, unable to comprehend, to accept what must come next. Jeff Jarvis speaks for all of us when he says, it it feels like the last evening in a Berlin nightclub at the twilight of Weimar, Germany. White cis males, and their sycophantic servants will be let loose to do as they will all over the platform because abuse and driving folks to suicide is what it all boils down to. They're going to misgender people. That's what he's talking about. There's gonna, they're going to misgender people, which will drive them. The wrong pronoun, there's nothing, nothing more dangerous than a wrong pronoun uh, that will drive you to suicide, uh, you know, kind, kind of like a car going off a cliff. You get in that pronoun and just boom <laughs> and off and crash. It's terrible. Here is Dr. Lauren Hall Liu, who identifies as she, her, uh, because she's a woman. Uh, She says, FYI, academic freedom and freedom of expression are dog whistles for silencing decolonial, anti-racist, trans-inclusive, and other progressive voices. Now, you notice no one is silencing she, her. She, her is silencing people who oppose her. But not letting she, her silence people is silencing her and her mind. Anyway, the Society and Culture article and subreddit concludes, free speech isn't the right to speak out against power. Free speech is an AR-15 and it's loaded and they're pointing it at our heads. So the left is not too hysterical about the, they're losing the right to censor people on Twitter. And the tragedy is, see, that the left thought its lies had this magic power that would transform reality into what they said it was. But the magic only worked. It only worked so long as no one was allowed to speak the truth. And that just made the magic. It was like a a kind of delicate, beautiful pink bubble that embraced the universe, changing it into what they wanted it to be. But the minute you spoke the truth, the bubble just burst, and suddenly we were back in reality. Before the tragedy—I mean, this is sad. Before Elon took over Twitter, a man could become a woman simply by writing trans women are women five times— in capital letters with exclamation points after it. It was like a spell. It was like a magic, it was amazing. It was amazing. But now, disenchanted reality. You know, we're all living in this disenchanted reality because of Elon where a guy like Rachel Levine who wears a dress will just look kind of silly because he's a guy wearing a dress. You know, before Elon came, climate change. Climate change was an existential threat so you could become a hero by gluing your face to a great work of art. Even if you had never contributed a single thing to human thriving or cultural beauty, that would make you a hero. But now that the magic is broken, the weather will just go on changing as it has from the beginning of time. And we human beings will have to deal with it perfectly by using the massive amounts of wealth we've accrued from, uh, you know, oil-driven capitalism. And climate activists who glue their noses to works of art uh, will just become useless schmucks who destroy beautiful things for no reason whatsoever. Before Elon, the vaccines were effective in blocking disease transmission, and the pandemic was over except for the fact that you had to stay indoors and wear a mask to keep everyone safe because the vaccines weren't effective in blocking disease uh, transmission. See, the the tragic thing about Twitter after Elon is that people will now be allowed to speak the simple truth without fear, and all the capital letters in the world won't be enough to magic the left's lies into reality. My, my heart is my heart is breaking. And living in rea- reality, you know, it means that you have to be who you were born to be. You have to be male or female in the image of God. You have to be not heroic at all because all of your emergencies are actually fancies. He's ginned up to gain political power. And you're not a victim, but you're just a bully who silences people while saying that they're silencing you. Reality, being who you really are, is very, very hard spiritual work. It's, it is the hard spiritual work of life. So this is tremendously sad. Thank God, there's still TikTok. It is amazing to say this, but the holiday season is coming. Soon it'll be Halloween, and right after Halloween, as you know, Thanksgiving starts, Christmas is on the way. If you're a small business owner, You know how important it is to be ready for the insane holiday season. If you haven't started preparing for the chaos of holiday mailing and shipping, you're already falling behind. Luckily... Stamps.com is everything you need to make your life a whole lot easier. It's the 24-7 post office that you can access from anywhere. No lines, no traffic, no hassle. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. Get access to the USPS and UPS services that you need to run your business right from your computer. With inflation on the rise, every dollar counts. Protect your margins with major discounts on U.S. Post Office and UPS rates up to 86% off. Use stamps.com to print postage wherever you do business, All you need is a computer and a printer, and if you need a package pickup, you can easily schedule it through your Stamps.com dashboard. And if you're running an online store, Stamps.com works seamlessly with all the major shopping carts and marketplaces. Get ahead of the holiday chaos this year. Get started with Stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code CLAVEN for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the mic microphone at the top of the page and enter code Claven. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, but how? Tell me how do you spell Clavin? It is K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's. I just make it look this easy. There are no you know, it's not just Elon Musk taking over Twitter. The, the fact that this midterm election is coming is highlighting the fact that where the Democrats are and where every sane person on Earth is are two entirely different places. I mean, we're talking about uh, Planet Crazy. They are literally living on Planet Crazy. The sound bites this week, I mean, I almost don't have to talk. I'm almost just going to play the sound bites so you can hear what they're saying. My, my favorite video, I think, of the week is this one. This this is from MSNBC, one of their anchors, Elise Jordan interviewed Western Pennsylvania Trump supporters about January 6th. And the idea was we were either going to see that they had been enlightened by the January 6th hearings or they were just stubborn, horrible people. They're still trying to sell this narrative that somehow this is important, especially because uh, Doug Mastriano is running for governor in Pennsylvania, was at the January 6th kerfuffle. And here is this... Uh, Amazing exchange, really, between Elise Jordan of MSNBC and these guys. They even dressed up as Trump supporters. (laughs) Usually these people are all in suits and ties, but they dressed up in funny uh, watch caps and sweaters so they would look like Trump supporters. And here's their response to her question of whether Mastriano and anybody involved in January 6th, wink, wink, uh, should be disqualified.
3: And the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol Police officer. An unarmed
0: female veteran. That's the only one that
3: died. That's the only one who died. A police officer did die. No. He it was a, a stroke. Attack. That's not,
2: That's not, not on not That's not caused site. by that. That's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman So was
3: what do you make, though, overall of January 6th? I mean, it was, watching that footage, it was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the walls, and it was, you know, it's the Capitol. That it looked a lot true. like
2: Antifa's actions yeah, it looked a lot, Except on a much smaller scale, it looked the same as the... Black Lives Matter, right. That's it's what been, I saw the similarities to be. Country, Indianapolis. One. Burns, Kenosha. Burns. But so it's OK Washington just because burns. just because like,
3: one side
1: that you no, disagree with. I'm it's saying okay. it's even right, infiltrated.
0: It's good for one, it's good for the other. What <laughs> gets me about this, what gets me about this is like their facts are right. You know, I think their moral stand is right in the sense that they later go on to say both sides should be prosecuted for anything they did that was illegal or dangerous. But it was both sides. And the January 6th kerfuffle was much, much smaller than the Black Lives riot matters, which killed many people and which burned down cities. He's naming the cities. It just amazes me that they know so much more than the MSNBC reporter. And this is the thing. I was a liberal in my youth. And what I remember is I didn't know anything about anything. What I knew was that conservatives were evil and I was the cool kid. I was the smartest guy in the room. And I think that that's where we are now. And now all this new information is coming out, for instance, that not only did Pfizer uh, admit that they didn't uh, test their vaccine for stopping transmissions before they announced it was 90 percent effective, but the White House also knew that the vaccine was not effective in stopping transmissions, and yet told everybody that it was. And all these people who shut down uh, businesses, who forced people out of work because they didn't take the vaccine or they didn't obey uh, the mandates. In New York State, a Supreme Court judge ordered that more than 1,700 city workers who were fired for refusing to get vaccinated had to be reinstated and paid, and now they can also sue, probably. Uh, in In other words, it was... The, what the right said was true, and the smartest kids in the room were wrong. The cool kids were wrong. Lots of, and it's not just that they were wrong. Lots of top doctors signed. Remember the uh, the Great Barrington Resolution that said old people should take the vaccine. It, I still believe that to be true. I think for old people, the risks uh, are are more from COVID than from taking the vaccine. But everybody else should just go about their business. They weren't just attacked. They were they were excoriated, they got death threats. People were calling them, so the smartest people in the room were not just wrong, they were wrong with a passion. They were wrong so angry, they were th- threatening the lives of doctors for not saying what they had been told by their insect overlords. That's how, they were so wrong, but they're the smartest people in the room and you are an idiot because you're a conservative. You know, you have to ask yourself this question. What if you're not the smartest person in the room? I mean, I think I think conservatives actually do this a lot. We ask ourselves, maybe I'm wrong. Let me check. Let me check the facts. Let me check the fact five times like I do before I come in. I don't just read one place because he agrees with me and accept that. I read the people who disagree with him and try to find a balanced place where I feel like, yeah, I can tell you something and have a pretty strong reliance that it's wrong, that it's right. And if it's wrong, I can come in and correct it. Listen to what this administration has been saying from the very beginning. This is a, just a montage of lies, I think, from Grabian. Uh, it's cut one.
4: You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations.
2: Vaccinated people do not carry the virus. Don't get sick.
4: Getting those shots out for 5 to 11-year-olds is going to provide a lot of comfort to American families.
2: Horses really running them over and people being strapped. A horrific video of the CBP officers on horse on horses using brutal and inappropriate measures against innocent people. We have... A secure border.
4: The border is in fact secure. The border is closed. The border is secure. The border is secure. The border is closed. We've been unequivocal in that.
3: On the issue of Afghanistan and to that end
2: we have seen a successful drawdown of the embassy. I think it's irresponsible to say Americans are stranded. They are not. This is Jim Crow on steroids what they're doing in, in Georgia. This is all about keeping working folks and Ordinary folks that I grew up with from being able to vote. The reconciliation package would cost zero dollars. The cost of these bills in terms of adding to the deficit is
0: zero. <laughs> so here's what, you know, I don't even know if any liberals listen to the show. I really don't. I sometimes hear people say that they listened to this show while they were kind of moving from one side to the other. But what if what if you're not the smartest person in the room? What if you're not the smartest person in the room and yet you're threatening death to doctors who disagree with the administration, if you want people censored on Twitter, uh, if you think anybody who doesn't believe that a man can become a woman should be censored and is hateful and all this, but you're not the smartest person in the room, then isn't it possible that you're being manipulated by people who are smarter than you are, or at least better than you are at manipulating people? They know how to manipulate you by complimenting, by saying you're the cool kid. You're the smartest person in the room. Uh, Go threaten that doctor with death for disagreeing with me uh, and come back and tell me how it went. I, I just, just the question that I, I always wonder when I watch people who I think are sincere, like AOC, I, I don't think she's a total con woman. I think she's an ignoramus, but I don't think she's a con woman. I think, why does she ever ask herself, if I'm the radical resistance, if I'm the radical socialist... Why does every corporation agree with me? Why does Hollywood and the Academy agree with me? Why does the deep state agree with, I mean, why do all these people who represent the man, the establishment, why do they all agree with me? Isn't it possible that I'm being used? Isn't it possible I just pawn in Game of Life, you know? (laughs) it, It just seems, if you're not the smartest person in the room, Somebody smarter than you are, and you've been lied to, and you are being ginned up to this passion for suppression, for censorship, uh, for fear, for cancellation by people who know what they're doing, who want something from—they want you to do something for them so they can solidify their power. So let's go through some of these clips. There's a poll. I just picked one poll because they all say the same thing. This is a a Harvard-Caps-Harris poll uh, released exclusively to The Hill. 74% of voters, 74% of voters, 74% of Americans agree on very little. But 74% of voters surveyed named inflation as very important in the upcoming midterms. 22% said it's somewhat important. That means, I'm an English major, but still that seems to come out to 96% of people who think inflation is important. Here's what Nancy Pelosi says on TV, cut nine.
3: When I hear people talk about inflation, as I heard him there, we have to change that subject. Inflation is a global phenomenon. Yes. The EU, the European Union, the UK, the British have higher inflation rate than we do here. It's not the fight is not about inflation. It's about the cost of living.
0: <laughs> I don't even know what that means. The fight is not about inflation. It's about the cost of living. But we got to change the subject. She says we got to change the subject. So let's change it to, for instance oil and energy, which is going to be in short supply. There may be a diesel shortage, which would shut this country down. Obviously, much of the prices, uh, the inflation is being driven by the fact that gas and oil are so expensive because we stopped being oil and gas and energy independent. A lot of it having to do with shutting down pipelines, but also this animosity toward fracking, a perfectly clean way of getting perfectly clean uh, energy. So, Okay, let's turn to someone else. Let's turn to uh, Pennsylvania governor candidate John Fetterman, who said this in 2018. This is cut seven. Said this in 2018 about fracking.
2: Fracking. Yeah, fracking. No, I I, I don't support fracking uh, at all. And I never have. I don't uh, support fracking. I I think it's something that has to eventually go away.
0: So he was asked about this stance at the debate uh, this week. And here's what he said. Cut six.
2: I do want to clarify something you're saying tonight that you support fracking that you've always supported fracking but there is that 2018 interview that you said quote i don't support fracking at all so how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I i do support fracking and i don't i don't i support fracking and i stand and i do support fracking Okay, thank you, Mr. Fetterman.
0: So, you know, again, you don't want to make fun of the guy because he's a, a stroke victim, but he's treating you like a stroke victim. I mean, if you're supposed to be the smartest guy in the room, and he just, the only time in that entire debate he made any sense at all, it was when he was lying. And so so when somebody lies to you like that, do you not feel disrespected? I, I just, I wish I could ask that, because... It's one thing to talk about the the politicians. It's one thing to talk about the powerful, the media leaders, the academics and all this. But what about the voters? What about the voters who say, well, you know, my candidates may not be good, but I know those conservatives are evil. I know the one thing I know is I know they're semi-fascist Nazi, semi-Nazi fascist Nazis. You know, I mean, that's that's the one thing they know about us. But when a guy treats you like that, when he just lies in your face, don't you think like, I mean, after this debate where... Fetterman was just embarrassingly disabled by his stroke, which is is not it's, it's kind of hilarious because he's standing up there, but it's not funny in a human way. obviously I feel bad for the guy. But all of that time the press was telling us beforehand that he was fine. I talked to him, he was doing great, there's no, he's really coming back. And now afterwards they're telling us he was a hero for standing up on that debate stage and looking like that. And I mean, I, the one thing I can say is at least he addressed for instance some economic issues like the minimum wage is cut 13. Do you support raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour? Why or why not? You have 60 seconds.
2: Yeah, I do, absolutely. I think it's a disgrace at 7.25 an hour. And how can a man, you know, with with you know, 10 gigantic mansions, you know, has uh, unwilling to talk about a a willing wage for anybody. Imagine a signal mom trying with two children, trying to raise with them, realizing making $31,000 a year, you know, $15 an hour. You know, I believe every work has dignity and every paycheck must have dignity in it as well. True. I've always supported a living wage.
0: Now. You may look at that and think the guy's incoherent. How can he do his job? But that's because you're ableist. This is the other thing. They're insulting you. They're saying to you, you know, I, what I just saw with my eyes is not a guy who should be the governor of a state. What are they telling you? What is the press telling you? Let's, let's look at Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, comparing him to FDR. This is cut three because everybody said, look, this was painful to watch. And it was, it was. I was watching. It was painful to watch. This is what Lawrence O'Donnell says. Cut three. While he was brilliantly winning World War II— Franklin Roosevelt once fell asleep in the Oval Office in the middle of signing his name to a letter. That was not painful to watch because no one got to see that. See, the problem is you. The problem was that you were watching it. If you weren't watching it, it wouldn't have been painful if you just do what they say. And now that it's over, now that it's over and we all saw that this was one of the the true collapses in political history on, on a debate stage. Now they're going to feed you what you should think. This is cut five. Cognitively, he's fine. Fetterman made it through, and I think John did well in that exchange. Came across that he's healing, but it doesn't affect his ability to think uh, mentally. You know, his brain is working fine.
2: At the end of the day, uh, I don't think that there was such a difference that met the expectations of what it could be. This idea that uh, uh, the, the 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 speed of your
0: response is somehow indicative of the way you would do the job is is really faulty and john understands everything he's able to think
2: so there was just no chance and certainly in that format no chance for fetterman to interrupt whereas oz broke the rules and kept jumping in
0: now i accidentally called that debate a a gubernatorial debate obviously it was a senate debate but listen fdr once fell asleep writing a letter while bombing uh pearl harbor or something so oh no i'm i'm totally fine i'm totally fine so that the, press, the press lies to you. You see what you see, but the press lies to you. The government lied to you. Twitter sil- has been silencing the people who tell you the truth. At what point, at what point do you say, we're not going to take this anymore? I mean, it is just amazing. And then you think, well, at least they're paying attention, maybe behind the scenes, they're paying attention to the things that matter. Here's what Joe Biden has, was doing this week. He was talking to a comedian, uh, Dylan Mulvaney, dressed up as a girl. This is cut eight.
3: Do you think states should have a right to ban gender affirming health care?
0: I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that.
2: As a moral question and as a legal question, I just think it's wrong. I call them reality deniers because they are completely on planet crazy and we want off.
0: <laughs> 96% of people are worried about inflation. And the Democrats say, let's change the subject. And the president of the United States is talking to a comedian who is dressed up as a girl and says his, his mission is to normalize the idea that girls can have penises. This is, this is, you know, like what the president of the United States is doing. It's just wrong. It's just wrong not to cut that person's body up uh, so that he can look like what he wants. That's, you know, he's not talking about nuclear war in Ukraine. He's not talking about inflation. All right, back to this poll. 68% say crime is very important. say it's somewhat important, so that's 94% of people who say that crime is important. Here is appointed New York Governor Kathy Hochul debating some guy, Lee Zeldin, who nobody knows, even he doesn't know who he is. He's like, I I don't know who I am, but I'm running for governor, And, and he's pulled neck and neck. Here is Kathy Hochul talking about crime with Lee Zeldin, Cut 14. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I stated that the first day that I'm in office, I'm going to declare a crime emergency and suspend Castle's bail and these other pro-criminal laws because there is a crime emergency. My opponent thinks that right now there's a polio emergency going on, but there's not a crime emergency. Different priorities that I'm hearing from people right now, they're not being represented from this, this governor, who still, to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate, she still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing
1: any crimes.
3: Okay. Anyone who commits a crime under our laws, especially with
2: the change they made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important to you. I call them reality deniers because they are completely on planet crazy
0: and we want off. I like the fact that she said that there will be a consequence, especially because of bail reform, which means they get off. They get let out uh, and then go do something else to somebody else. You know, there are no consequences, especially because of, uh, of bail reform. Henry Olson, the pollster that we love to have on, because he's not a pollster, he reads the polls, but he reads them so well. Uh, You know, he says that when they start to panic, when a party starts to panic, one way you can tell without looking at the polls is they start to try to make you afraid. Here is the press as the midterms approach, as we know the press, it's left wing press specifically, this cut 17.
3: We are watching Republicans not just destroying democracy in the dark, breaking into election officers and plugging stuff in we're watching them do it from rally stages
2: debate stages
4: we could lose our democracy and it could happen in 17 days a majority of americans believe that democracy is under threat
2: democracy on the ballot it's not just a slogan a lot
4: of republicans in the last three weeks have suddenly found themselves deciding hey party over country.
0: I'm wondering whether this
2: puts America into the fast lane towards illiberal democracy.
1: Uh, I'm not gonna say that, you know, the GOP are Nazis at this point or whatever, but it certainly sounds very familiar.
3: We will wake up the morning after election day. We might not even call it that anymore in two years. The future is not Republican party, so they have to cheat.
0: <laughs> so that now I'm so afraid of losing my democracy. I had it here a minute ago and I can't find. so it may have already slipped away. Now, I'm so afraid. I, the, the most important thing to me is that Joe Biden runs again to save our democracy. Let's find out if he will. This is Cut 11.
2: I have not made that formal decision, but it's my intention. My intention to run again. And we have time to make that decision. Uh, Dr.
4: Biden is for it. Mr. President. Oh.
0: He, f- he fell asleep. He fell asleep in the middle of the question. So that's I, I'm more afraid of the guy with his finger on the nuclear button falling asleep. Uh, but listen, all, all I'm wondering, I really do wonder about this because, you know, I a lot of leftists won't come on the show. It's hard for me to talk to the left wing these days. I just wonder, like, if they're the smartest people in the room— Shouldn't they be smart enough to ask themselves whether they're the smartest people in the room? And if they're not the smartest people in the room, why are they so passionate about what they're being told to believe? That they want to silence people, that they want to end free speech, that they're ready to hate on their fellow Americans for disagreeing with them. Maybe they're just being manipulated by people who are smarter than they are. Prices are rising, and recently the stock market has been going down. When the bottom falls out of the market, it's nice to have something tangible to hold on to, an asset that mankind has valued since at least biblical times. That's gold and silver. You can own physical gold and silver when you go to bullionmax.com slash These guys are precious metals professionals. They'll ship gold and silver coins and bars in any denomination directly to your door, fully insured. Inflation is out of control. The government is addicted to spending. Markets don't know how to respond. Now is the time to invest in a little security for your family. Go to bullionmax.com slash clavin. I teamed up with Bullion Max to create a silver starter bundle for patriots, like yourselves. Get five one-ounce solid silver coins, including an American Eagle, a Buffalo, even a Donald Trump silver round. These are all solid, precious metals helping you hedge against inflation with cool collector's items. Go to bullionmax.com Claven Clavin now to claim your patriotic silver start kit. That's bullionmax.com Claven Clavin. But, but you're asking, but how do I spell Claven? It is K-L-A-V-A-N, and you can spell it that way too. So the one thing always, always that the smartest people in the room, the cool kids, the Democrats, the left, the one thing they know is that we are fascist. You know, Joe Biden was kind to us. He said we were only semi-fascist, but really they think that we are the fascists. And that is why I want to talk about the DOJ and the FBI, because if the DOJ and the FBI have gone bad, then you really are flirting, maybe not with fascism, but with some very strong and corrupt authoritarianism. In the Atlantic, a staff writer, Franklin Four, writes about the, what he calls the inevitable indictment of Donald Trump. And he says that uh, Merrick Garland, uh, the corrupt attorney general, he says his devotion to procedure, his belief in the rule of law... And in particular, his reverence for the duties, responsibilities, and traditions of the U.S. Department of Justice will cause him to make the most monumental decision an attorney general can make and indict the former president of the United States, a criminal indictment against a former president, which has never, of course, happened before. But the thing is, those of us who are not the smartest people, who aren't the cool kids, who are maybe semi-fascist, we we know— the DOJ has gone bad, we know the FBI has gone bad, and we know Merrick Garland is involved with it, right? We have, remember that letter from the National School Board Association when parents started to complain about the things, the critical race theory that teachers said wasn't being taught but was, the sexual deviance that was being sold to little children, uh, the pornographic material, they say, oh, those right-wingers are banning books because we don't want pornographic material in kindergarten, in elementary schools, in middle schools. And remember, the National School Boards Association Wright wrote. First, they visited with the Biden White House, with political people in the Biden White House. Then they sent a letter to the DOJ and the FBI asking them to investigate these parents as if they might be domestic terrorists. And within six days, the DOJ, which never answers a letter in less than six months, you can be a senator saying, Hey, what's going on over there? They will not tell you in six days. Merrick Garland said, "Absolutely, we are on it." Merrick Garland, you know, federal law guy, is going after parents as if they were terrorists. So we know, we know there's something wrong. We know they've been politicized with uh, politicized during this administration. We know that. Uh, through the cases that John Durham has been losing, people keep saying, well, why is John Durham bringing these minor cases where people lie to the FBI? But he has been in court explaining to people that the FBI investigated Donald Trump's relationship with Russia long after they knew the Russian collusion story was a hoax and the Steele dossier was completely uh, fraudulent and ridiculous, it had no merit whatsoever. They were still selling that to FISA court so they could bug American citizens. Uh, we have a letter uh sent to Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray and Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss uh, by Senator Chuck Grassley, in which he says the FBI is holding on to significant, impactful, and voluminous evidence of potential criminal conduct by Joe Biden's son Hunter and his brother James Biden relating to their business dealings in China and Ukraine. And we know the big guy was supposed to get 10 percent of whatever they were making over there. So the FBI knows about this. They've got the letter. They keep dropping hints, little leaks that it's going to be investigated, that there'll be an indictment. I haven't seen any, any trace of that at all. Rolling Stone has a piece about an award winning national security producer for ABC named James Gordon Meek. There was an FBI raid on his house, one of these incredible SWAT raids they've been pulling on nonviolent people. And Meek has not been seen since. Nobody Nobody knows where he went. We have Megan Basham, our own Megan Basham, coming on to talk more about what the FBI is doing. We have an FBI uh, whistleblower, uh, Scott Friend, who's going to come on and talk to us about what he personally saw going on at the FBI. If the FBI has gone bad, if the DOJ has been politicized, who are the semi-fascists? Who are the semi-fascists? You do not see, not since Nixon, uh, have you seen a president try to get— Uh, the IRS to target his enemies. The IRS refused to do it with Nixon, but they did it for Obama. Not since Nixon have we seen the misuse of uh, law enforcement agencies to intimidate people the way they are doing it now, just intimidating people and raiding their houses just because they disagree. I don't know who the smartest people in the room are, but I know one thing, the fascists are not on the right, at least not the ones who are in actual power. All right, my wife is here watching the show today. That's why I'm so happy to do the Rock Auto commercial, because I get to say rockauto.com. And you know the effect that has on women. They wilt, they swoon, they sigh. Why? Because they know when you say rockauto.com, not only does it sound cool, but it means that you know where to go to get parts for your automobile. You do not go down to some store where you don't know the people. They don't know anything. They just pretend to. You just go on your computer to rockauto.com. You use their easy-to-use catalog. It has reliably low prices. The place is family-owned. Their goal is to make auto parts available and affordable to keep you safe on the road. And they not only have the auto parts you need, but they'll give you a selection of trusted name brands to choose from. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Plus, you get to say RockAuto.com, which will improve your love life amazingly. And you can get brakes, shocks, wipers, headlights, mirrors, mufflers, lug nuts, any other part you need. RockAuto.com. And be sure to write Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know I sent you. And make sure you say it the same way Clavin, K L A V A N. It works every time. So, as you know, we always love once a month to have Megan Basham come on. She is the cultural reporter for The Daily Wire and an excellent, excellent cultural reporter. If you don't have a reader's pass, you are missing some great, great content that she is producing. Last time she was here, we talked about a a FBI raid on a pro-life protester, and I wanted to know more about that, and so I've asked Megan to kind of follow that story up. Megan, first of all, it's good to see you. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm not as well as you because I didn't just come off a you know whirlwind European tour, but I'm good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I'm about to pitch forward. this is the second week I've done the show absolutely exhausted. <laughs> but um, you know this turns out to be a bigger story than we were talking about last time. I mean there is actually there's actually a task force formed after the Dobbs decision overturned Roe to deal with pro-life protesters. Is that a fair statement?
3: No, that's exactly what's happening. So um, essentially what we've seen is that after the Dobbs decision came down in July, the Biden administration formed a reproductive rights task force, and it's housed in the DOJ in the Office of Civil Rights, which is the same division that houses these uh, FACE Act. They investigate these FACE Act violations, which is freedom of access to uh, reproductive clinics or something like that. I can't remember what the exact acronym stands for, but it's basically freedom of access to things like both pro-life centers and also uh, abortionists. So um, essentially, once the Biden administration launched that, we started to see this ramp up in these face act arrests. But what's interesting is, as we talked about last time, there was a pro-life case that was fairly astonishing to the nation. This father, Mark Hauk, in Pennsylvania, Who was arrested with, um, there's been a debate over whether or not it was a SWAT raid, but it was a lot of FBI agents showing up at his house early in the morning for a man who had no criminal history and this certainly wasn't uh, a violent actor. This wasn't somebody that people would have characterized that way. So after that, um, now in October, we had another arrest like that um, of another 11 pro-life demonstrators and we've had 28 so far this year. So what we're seeing is just a lot of ramp up of activity coming out of these FACE Act violations. Um, so when I started digging into it, before we get to talking about how this happened, I think it's worth going back and saying, look, here is how these arrests are being made for charges like trespassing, um, charges like you know blocking an entrance. So. Hardly something you would expect the full weight of federal authority to come down on. And so I went ahead and I called one of the uh, people who was a, who was arrested in that last case. And um, it's a man named Cal Zastro. And his group of demonstrators were in front of a clinic in Tennessee. And the DOJ is claiming that they obstructed uh, and intimidated. And there was a suggestion of violence I asked him about that. He said no. There was no violence. There was nothing like that. There wasn't even a little shoving match or any sort of little scuffle, like we heard about in the Mark Hout case. What he said was that um, essentially they were just praying and singing. They were trespassing, and so they got a trespassing charge from local authorities, and that seems to have been what brought the FBI to their doors. And I just want to pray, play a real quick clip of Cal Zastrow who was out of the country at the time, but he received a call from his colleagues about what happened when the FBI came to arrest them.
2: And uh, so he called me when I was in Ukraine and said, hey, the FBI have just raided Paul's house. They got guns pointed at the kids' heads and uh, they haven't heard from Paul for six hours. And uh, it's bad. So I said, well, get over there and comfort them and love them and help them out till." he hopefully gets home or they find out where they've taken him to it was it was yeah it's a real cowboy raid
3: so fairly dramatic stuff there
0: (laughs) yeah have you have you called the fbi and the doj to ask him about this
3: Yes. So, you know, that's another part of the story is that I have tried to get in touch with the DOJ, specifically this reproductive rights task force several times. They're not the only ones I've called, but I've tried multiple avenues and I'm getting nowhere. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of reporters who cover this beat, we talk to each other and they're getting the same thing. Um, So I made a call to Roger Severino, who worked in the DOJ under the Obama administration when they very first started to prosecute some of these FACE Act violations against pro-lifers. And he also headed up the civil rights division in the Trump administration. And what he told me is that this is something that he's hearing all reporters are experiencing. Uh, I've got a clip of that as well.
4: They've been asked multiple times by media outlets. I just spoke with a reporter yesterday who told me, yes, we, we said the request. And they said they're investigating FACE Act cases. Um, that uh, on all bases, okay, how many? They refuse to answer.
3: So an interesting note here is it's not just us lowly reporters who are not getting answers from the DOJ. Uh, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas has also demanded some details on, okay, exactly how many arrests have you made in these attacks on something like 84 churches and something around 80 pro-life organizations. So that's together. So separate 80 churches, 75 or so pro-life organizations. How many arrests have been made under the FACE Act in those cases? Because those are also FACE Act violations. And um, he is also not getting any information from the DOJ. So there seems to be just a really wide stonewalling here for not just reporters, but also uh, congressmen. And, um, you know, I made a lot of calls about that. Like I said, I didn't get any answers. But what I did do this morning was I attended a Heritage Foundation panel on some of the people who have been targeted uh, by these kind of um, abortion activists. Uh, really sort of violent people, and one of them was a woman named Julaine Appling, and she's the, uh, I'll have to check my notes, but she's the president of the Wisconsin Family Action Group, and they are a pro-life group, and her offices were attacked with two Molotov cocktails, and it was set on fire, so a little bit more than singing and praying in front of the entrances. And she says that uh, she has only heard from the FBI once. Hmm. This happened back in May. It was on Mother's Day, and when she heard from the FBI, it was because she called them. And not to inundate you with sound bites, but I do feel like it's worth hearing her describe that.
2: It came out with three cans of physical evidence, left, and said, "This is an active, ongoing, aggressive investigation." I've heard from FBI once, and it was at my calling them because someone was trying to say, hey, we're trying to track down a phone number, and it just sounded suspicious, so I called the FBI. I've heard nothing from ATF.
3: So there you go, that kind of lays out the situation. Um, So really what we're seeing here is very unequal justice, or at least it appears like very unequal justice because the DOJ won't give anyone any information about what's happening.
0: So this has been going on. This The FACE Act isn't new. The, the task force is new. The task force yes. was formed after Dobbs. But the FACE Act has been around at least since Obama, right? This, this happened a while ago.
3: Yeah, so the FACE Act was, uh, it actually was established in the 90s during the Clinton era. Okay. But it was established with, you would have to say, sort of a bipartisan council. They said there were both pro-life advisors, there were pro-choice advisors, and they helped to develop this. But under Obama, uh, what Severino told me is that it came to be enforced only against pro-lifers. So at that point, when they were bringing cases, some federal judges stepped in and basically said, okay, you guys can't do this, and told them to knock it off (laughs) to sort of put it colloquially. And yeah, they said, it looks like you're doing the bidding of the abortion group, so you need to not do that. And at that point, I think it kind of just dropped off the radar. Until after Dobbs. But, you know, I heard some of the people I talked to this week say if there is a lever of power that DC is going to use, they will eventually remember to use it. And that's what we're seeing here with this Space Act.
0: Can we expect the ju- those judges to slap them down again?
3: Well, you know, Severino said in this case, he thinks that most of them are going to go back to probably Biden appointees. Mm. So he is not expecting that right now. And he thinks that's why it has gotten so sort of almost belligerent in how it's being enforced. Um, like I said, a lot of people are asking questions and if it were just pro-life groups asking questions, I think that would make a little more sense. But when you see that they're stonewalling all reporters, I mean, it was really hard to get any information. If you go onto the DOJ site, you cannot find any details whatsoever about them investigating any of these attacks on, um, pro-life organizations. And again, we're talking about Blocking an entrance versus Molotov cocktails. So it's a pretty stark difference.
0: This is this is dirty stuff. This is really bad stuff because these are you know obviously you can trespass. You should get a ticket for trespassing. You can do things that are wrong uh, even when you're on the right side. But to you know we had uh, um, a. a an FBI whistleblower who was investigating real crimes like murder and things like that. And he said he never used SWAT team. He was on a SWAT team, and he said you would never use a SWAT team in situations like this. So who's running this thing? Who is is running the task force? Who's running this operation?
3: Yeah, and I do want to actually, before we get to that, really quickly say about that SWAT team issue. um, One of the things that Severino pointed out was that, look, it's actually very dangerous to bring SWAT teams into situations where they're not needed. Um, you know, there have been cases where people have been shot who were not violent offenders. You know, one of them he said, you know, in a gambling ring. So people who they were not expecting to be violent and someone actually ended up dying, weapons discharge. It's not a good idea to do that. Um, and so anyway, that was a really important point that I thought, man, when you're dealing with people who have no criminal history and you have no reason to think they're gonna be violent um, you can create some really tragic situations when you show up with a lot of armed officers. And he acknowledged that he's somebody who's worked in the DOJ. I haven't, but I thought that was a pretty, um, cogent point and getting to who is running this, you know, we talked a little bit about that as well. And, um, so he actually worked with this woman, uh, Vanita Gupta, who was running it and described her as a leftist. So they worked together at the DOJ in the Obama era. And, um, know i'll let him describe her
0: okay
4: she was at doj civil rights and we overlapped i believe yeah and she um was a left winger then and is a is even more left-wing now uh there is good reason to believe given her high position at doj that she's deeply involved regardless of her politics, because that's the nature of her job. When you add in her politics and her known left-wing views, then of course she's gonna be not only informed but deeply involved in, in pushing this. That's what one would expect, given her background.
0: Wow, wow, I mean,
4: yeah.
3: Yeah, well, I, say, I would like to say also, I, I would have really um, wanted to give Vanita Gupta the chance to answer that, but like I said, I can't get through to her. So,
0: yeah. yeah. That,
3: uh, and, and yeah, the second in command, she is also um, sort of known for being very uh, uh, pro-choice, aggressively so. Um, it's a woman named Kristen Clark. And she has on Twitter called crisis pregnancy centers predatory and fake clinics. And so we have two known, fairly biased actors running this task force.
0: She is. This is what about these clinics? You know, I I do hear liberal people sort of talk about these clinics as if they were like the Salvation Army uh, in the old days, converting people by giving them food uh, that they draw women in and then they uh, get them to give birth and then they don't help them at all. What, What do they do exactly? Are they suspect?
3: No, well, look. I mean, they—they they are what they—they wear what they do on their sleeves. They yeah. are pro-life, so they're very clear that we're not going to help you get an abortion. So um, I don't think they're tricking anyone. Yeah. If you, they, what they will do though is they provide a lot of free medical care. Um, they provide ultrasounds, prenatals. Um, they'll do STD testing, and then what they also will do is help women connect with health services ongoing, not abortions. But other health services, if they can't afford it to let, uh, allow them to get medical care, they connect them with adoption services if they want that. I um, I talked to a gentleman today who works with an adoption service, and he says that crisis pregnancy centers are vital to their work, that they help them connect people who want to be moms and dads with people who don't feel that they can be moms and dads. Um, and they also give away a lot of free stuff, very dastardly. They give away diapers, <laughs> wipes clothes, cribs, so uh, a lot of stuff like that.
0: (laughs) You know, I I have to get one of these people. I don't know if I can, but I'd like to get one of these pro- abortion uh, activists to come on and explain this to me because I do not see this commitment to killing children uh, over over you know giving them to people who want them Megan uh, really good job and I really appreciate it next time you come on let's talk about the movies or something a little bit more uh, cheerful <laughs> uh, but but I, I just feel I just feel the FBI the FBI uh, an organization I have admired my whole life has gone bad uh, from is rotting from the head down. Uh, and I think that uh, it's important to cover it. And so maybe the next time you see me, I'll have been carted off myself. But I uh, <laughs> I hope to see you again. I hope not. <laughs> yes, me too, and I hope to see you again next month. Thank you very much. Megan Basham, uh, if you're not reading your stuff at The Daily Wire, you should be, so do. Thanks a lot, Megan. Thanks so much. What are your family's values? Faith, church on Sunday, does your family believe in serving? Did you vaccinate your kids or say, I will not? How does your family define men and women? What kind of value do they put on life? Your children look to you to define their values and their perspectives on the world, but what if you weren't here to do that for them? In the event that you die, you will ensure that your kids uphold the values you hold dear, the values that you've worked so hard to instill in them. Epic Will can help with that. A will lets you determine who will raise your kids in the event that you die before you're done raising them. This is a big deal, and it's your responsibility as a parent. It's why we at The Daily Wire have partnered with Epic Will, and it's why I'm encouraging you to take five minutes, go to epicwill.com, use promo code CLAVEN to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package, and just for just 119 dollars You'll get your last will and testament, living will, healthcare power of attorney, and financial power of attorney. Get it done at epicwill.com. Promo code CLAVEN to save 10%. That's K L A V A N. There are no E's in CLAVEN. So, my wife is here today watching the show because I wanted to prove to her that I actually was gainfully employed. Uh, We have been married for more than 40 years. I've been married longer than I haven't been married. Uh, So, I know a lot about this, and I want to tell you that you should be watching Jordan Peterson's new three part series on marriage. It's exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. As always, Jordan really manages to crystallize everything that you want to know on this subject the series is indispensable marriage rates are at an all-time low in the u.s the u.s birth rate has fallen by 20 percent since 2007 young people are getting married much later in life and less frequently too big mistake there are a lot of young men out there who sadly think that marriage means giving up your freedom well it does but it means getting a lot too and jordan will set you straight and give you some much needed perspective and for those of you who are married and you might feel like the spark is missing, Jordan will show you how to rekindle it. I'm not going to reveal what Jordan revealed about his own sex life, but trust me, you want to watch and find out. Daily Wire Plus members can watch the first episode of Jordan Peterson's On Marriage with two more episodes coming out soon. And remember, your membership really helps us prevent a total collapse of society as we know it. If you're not yet a member, go to dailywire.com slash clavin and join. That's dailywire.com slash clavin today. And once you join, we'll actually tell you how to spell Claven. It's secret information that we only share with members. So we're talking about the FBI, and I'm really happy to have Steve Friend come on. He has been an FBI special agent since 2014. Uh, Prior to his reassignment to focus on domestic terrorism in 2021, uh, he devoted his career to investigating violent crime and child pornography and all the other things that FBI agents are supposed to be uh, investigating. He has now been suspended uh, for whistleblowing, which I think in and of itself is telling. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much, Drew. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: So you're investigating uh, domestic terrorism. How does that become, how does that move you into investigating the January 6th events?
1: So I got folded into uh, the Joint Terrorism Task Force in my office uh, when the fiscal year rolled over in 2021. Uh, It was staffed at that point, including me, by four uh, individuals. And just by sheer volume of cases that, that were there, for the most part, they were all derivative of January sixth investigations.
0: So, so in other words, that's what that's what uh, domestic terrorism was. It was all about January sixth.
1: Yes. Yeah, so when when I was moved over to from my uh, child exploitation cases, the uh, assistant special agent in charge even mentioned that he felt that uh, child pornography was going to be a local issue. And that domestic terrorism, specifically January sixth, was the higher priority.
0: So, how did that strike you when, it, when the, when you first realized that? Did you think, okay, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is, or did that immediately strike you as being wrong?
1: I was pretty upset, uh, and and I voiced my concerns. That I transferred to the office that I'm in now uh, a few months prior to that, with the understanding that I would be doing the child uh, exploitation investigations. And in just the 10 weeks that I had been doing them, I had been working with a lot of locals and made a lot of promises. And we'd started some some really good casework and actually had some subjects already in custody. So I felt like it was a success. And then just being moved over like that uh, was upsetting. But, you know, I I tell them, I'm a team guy. If if that's where the priority is for the field office, then I will do that.
0: So when the investigation started, when you were part of it, did any of it strike you as uh, being wrong in some way?
1: Yes, from right from the outset. So uh, a little bit on my background, uh, coming from the violent crimes uh, it, on Indian country reservation work, uh, you have an opportunity to open up a lot of cases. So in my eight years in the FBI, I opened up more than 200 cases and arrested over 150 violent subjects. So when I got brought in to look at the January 6th cases, you know, my instinct is to move quickly one case to the next. You're, you're turning a wrench. You don't want to get bogged down. Um, and when I looked into the January 6 cases, right away noted that the uh, cases were more or less being directed from Washington, DC as opposed to being within the control of uh, our office and uh, the agents who were supposed to be being, doing, being the case managers.
0: So all right, so you're supposed to manage those cases when they come to you, but they're being run from DC. Were they being run badly from DC?
1: Well, I, I think it's just inconsistent with the FBI rules. So uh, we have very specific rules when it comes to having cases open. Once they're open and assigned to a specific field office and there's uh, agents or task force officers who are running that case, it's really their responsibility to you know to carry the, the case forward and make all the investigative decisions. Uh, when I talked to my colleagues since I was late to the game and they'd already done some of the work on these cases, they were just kind of standing in limbo and, and not progressing forward. I asked, you know, what are we doing? And they said, we're just waiting for Washington, D.C. to decide if they're going to charge these, if they're going to want more work done on them, Um, or, you know, for a lot of them, they were really just hoping that they were going to be declined to prosecute because there wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, derogatory information in them. Hmm. So at what point do you begin to complain? I mean, at what point do you say anything to your superiors? So I, I... was fortunate that i had a a a good situation with my supervisor where he sort of recognized there wasn't a lot of case work to be done so he really let me continue my child exploitation investigation sort of on the on the dl Uh, so i kind of kept my head down doing that because i was really satisfied with the work i was doing uh, until a an email was circulated around my office in august of this year uh, that we were going to be doing some arrests and uh, and some search warrant op- operations. And it was going to be the first opportunity that I really had uh, to arrest any of these January 6th subjects. Uh, just from the way the ca- cases had been managed and and the little bit of uh, work that I'd done on them, I felt really uncomfortable with it. Uh, and at that point, decided to, to vocalize it to my, to my manager, you know, what my concerns were.
0: So t- to be specific, when you say that, you thought there wasn't enough evidence to arrest them? Is that what you're saying?
1: Correct. I, I can specifically remember interviewing an individual uh, at a law office c- because he was already represented and you know, him telling us how he'd gone to President Trump's speech and, and walked to the Capitol. Uh, he'd never been to the Capitol, so it was his first trip to Washington, D.C. He saw an open door, asked a Capitol police officer for permission to go in, went inside. We had him on surveillance tape looking at the artwork, uh, didn't even walk beyond a red velvet rope on his way out uh, he took one of the free brochures for the uh, tourists and, and left and, and he even apologized for taking that nah. uh, and he, he at that point he'd already uh, you know lost his job he was you know out how, however many funds he was to, to hire a, uh, an attorney uh, so I really just felt like the, the the process we were putting him through was a punishment for something that he might' not even be you know guilty of even committing a crime so when you complain what's the reaction? Uh, I had a real cordial conversation with my frontline manager. He, he obviously voiced uh, you know, support from, from my sticking to principle. Uh, but uh, ultimately, he decided that he was going to be you know, he had to pass my uh, my situation on up the chain of command because as a domestic terrorism investigator and, and me obviously objecting to doing domestic terrorism uh, arrests on the biggest case in the FBI, uh, he wanted that kind of handled at a higher level. So I had a, a sit down meeting with two uh, assistant special agents in charge of my field office to voice all the similar concerns that I have and also bring to their attention because you know, they had been at that point in the Bureau for, I'm sure, you know a decade plus. I, I wasn't aware if they'd done the similar training that I'd done, where at the FBI Academy, you go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum and the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial and you have a, a, a day where you have a conversation with a representative from the Anti-Defamation League. And, and the point of that training is to really drill home to the new agents that, you know, abuses of power and, and genocide and civil rights violations are only made possible when nobody rings the alarm when you know, these abuses come in. So I felt like it was incumbent on me and consistent with the training I'd received to, to draw attention to that and and as well as the fact that I'd taken my oath to the Constitution and, and you, know, the, you know the the mechanisms we were using I felt were inconsistent with due process and, and potentially violating you know cruel and unusual punishment of the Eighth Amendment with the way that even people who had been convicted of crimes were being you know treated in the lead up to their trials and, and subsequently in their in their sentencing could you be more specific about that? Why did you feel that their treatment was
0: a violation.
1: Well, I just noticed that there was a really heavy hand in how we were going about our investigations. The FBI uh, really prides itself on liaising with local law enforcement, and, and I've done that throughout my career. I, you know, I've said before I've arrested one hundred and fifty violent criminals. I never had to use a SWAT team to do it. Yeah, uh, and these and these were individuals who, you know, s- sexual assault, molestation, aggravated assault, even murder charges. Uh, But I leaned heavily on the the police officers who I work with on a day-to-day basis. They had a great relationship, or at least not great, but at least they were a familiar person to those individuals because they were the the local police officer. So it it was really just a question of local police officer knocks on the door with somebody. We had an open dialogue with that individual, so he knew that he was being investigated. SWAT team at 6 o'clock in the morning throwing flashbangs and breaching a house to me seemed like over the top. And I'm saying that as somebody who actually was on a SWAT team for five years.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so guys taking a pamphlet out of the Capitol and they're being there, they've got SWAT teams waking them up. And, and what was the reaction? What was their reaction? You, you go and you talk to these two agents in charge. What do they say to you?
1: So they pushed back on me and said I was being a bad teammate. Uh, they said that I was being insubordinate and, um, even brought up, you know, the fact that, you know, what's my future going to be with the FBI, despite having my my work reputation being really good. I I actually received an award about a month before all of this happened. Um, And and then I also had a really kind of scary uh, question from one of them where he said, Steve, why do you think people who kill police officers shouldn't be charged with a crime? And I looked back at him and told him that, None of the protesters or insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, actually killed a police officer that day. That day. And he it, he reacted as if it was new information to him. Ah. So <laughs> um, they told me at the end of that meeting that, you know, they appreciated me coming forward. But, you know, the, the process was starting, uh, but it was going to be really slow and evolving because it's a federal government and, and it's like turning an aircraft carrier. Um But uh, apparently I found the the fastest process in the FBI because three hours later I was uh, told not to report to work the next day. And then I was going to be absent without leave um, during the because the next day was going to be the uh, the arrest operation.
0: Wow. So you were you were sent home. Did you ever come back or I mean, you've been suspended now indefinitely, right?
1: Yes, I was able to come back the the next day uh, following my my AWOL uh, experience. About a week later, I had a meeting with the highest level uh, of management in my field office, and that was uh, the special agent in charge, Sherry Onks. Uh, we had a, about a 20-minute conversation um, during which she told me that uh, never in her 24 years had she ever had uh, an agent behave like me and that I represented a really fringe belief within the FBI that uh, you know what was going on was inappropriate. Uh, and she told me that I needed to do some soul searching as to whether or not I was going to have a career going forward. Um, and, uh, and that she expressed to me that, you know, on the, on January 6th, she was in Washington, DC on the seventh floor of the, of the Hoover building where the director is. And, uh, and the real fear that she felt when those people tried to seize our democracy, uh, was, was palpable to her. And I couldn't possibly understand how serious it was. So,
0: you know, one of the things that people like me keep wondering is how far down does this kind of attitude go? How far down do do the people who... Decided that Trump's relationship with Russia needed to be investigated for two years, uh, that, you know, FISA courts could be lied to in order to get the right to, how far down does that go? Because as a a reporter, I've talked to FBI agents really most of my adult life, and they've always been incredibly professional, uh, incredibly on top of the kinds of crimes you've investigated most of your life. And now it seems that there's a lot of this stuff going on. When you are in an FBI field office, do you feel that you're surrounded by people who are out to get half of their fellow fellow citizens for their political opinions?
1: So I've been in two field offices uh, since since January 6th happened uh, to a person, uh, the, the agents that are street agents, agents on the ground um, have agreed with my sentiments that uh, we're, we're being you know, overly aggressive. Um, we all definitely think that you know, if somebody broke the law and, and did so you know egregiously or violently that there are consequences for that and the sh- charges should be pursued. Um, But I think there's just a a giant, uh, giant gap between management at headquarters of the FBI and the rank and file. And that that might be political. Um, I think it's probably more of a combination of the the political nature slash opportunism, because, you know, this is the next 9-11. We're we're 20 years after September 11th. It's a whole another generation of agents looking to make their mark and and definitely having your name on the biggest case of the generation is going to be something that you know, anybody with ambition is going to want to take advantage of.
0: Mm. They they actually went after your wife at one point. That actually, or was it, they didn't go after her, but Facebook sort of mysteriously went after her. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes. So I, I mean, I can only surmise, uh, you know, who was really pulling the strings on that. But uh, right after my name became public, uh, a friend of, of ours reached out with uh, a, a request from uh, a woman from Moms for Liberty. Um, she didn't know me and she was just trying to get in touch and express her support. So, I don't have a Facebook account. My wife does. My wife's from Ukraine. Uh, does, uh, so her you know, native tongue is, is, is Russian. So her name is in the Cyrillic alphabet. So you would have no idea, you know, that she's my wife. Um, she doesn't post, she doesn't, she's not a troll. She does just sends private messages and, and has you know pictures. So she sent this woman a private message uh, saying, I'm Steve friend's wife. Uh, thank you. You know, we, we just would appreciate if you could share the, you know, the information out there, but I, mean, I hadn't come forward yet. And thirty minutes later, her account was suspended for violating community standards. Uh, she appealed it immediately, and the following day the account was completely shut down. Ah, wow,
0: wow, that's that's really so I've only got a minute left. What do you think is going to happen next? I mean, are there more I know there are more uh, whistleblowers, but are there enough? Are there enough people to turn this around? Is this something that you feel can be Fixed fairly easily by getting rid of skimming some of
1: the people off the top, or has this really gone through the entire agency? I think there needs to be a massive reform of our headquarters. I think that the mindset there is is really the problem. The rank and file people just want to put bad guys in jail. But as far as headquarters goes, you know I, I was in a meeting a few months ago where a representative from Human resources told us that they considered the field fully staffed. And they really just need to beef up management, middle management mm. in, in Washington, D.C. And, and that to me is, is the problem. You know, if you're clicking apply to the FBI and you want to just be a middle manager, you know, I, I don't know if you, if you really uh, you know, have, have the, the, the forethought to, to, to be the, the special agent who's going to uphold the fidelity, bravery, integrity uh, motto that the FBI stood for for 100 years. Right, right, because you've
0: never been on the street, Steve Friend. Thank you so much. I hope you uh, find your feet and find a place to to rest, because I think you're uh, you're doing the right thing, and it's always uh, always you always have to pay a price for that. Thank you very much, Drew. I'm honored to talk to you. It was great to talk to you. Thanks. All right, we have studied a lot of corruption today, but now we move into the pure stream of. Spiritual guidance and love uh, before we get to the darkness and hell of the Clavenless Week, uh, which is to say that we we're about to solve all your problems with the mailbag.
2: Yeah, again, my Dr. L believes that I'm fit to be serving, <laughs> and that's what I believe
0: is where I'm standing. Yeah! Uh, oh, God. We, hey, you guys are just cruel now. This just cruel. All right, from, <laughs> from Joel. Uh, dear Andrew, I just finished reading A Killer in the Wind, which is one of my novels. Uh, what a gripping story. As I read the part where one of the characters gets locked in the trunk of the car, that is the scene that a lot of people mention. Uh, I imagined you possibly getting into a car trunk yourself to figure out the realities of what your character would experience there. That is exactly what I did. I got into the trunk of my own car and it was harrowing. I, uh, I don't have, I don't have a big uh, case of claustrophobia, but I've got a little case of claustrophobia, and it was terrifying. Uh, I got me to wondering, what is the strangest thing you have ever personally done or tried to do in order to figure out a plot element for a character in your books? Uh, thank you for your con- contributions to The Conservative, and then it just drops off. So I assume that Joel uh, was driving while he was writing <laughs> this, but I don't know, The Conservative Movement, maybe The Conservative Arts, uh, whatever. Um, but... Anyway, uh, yeah, I've done some pretty offbeat stuff. Locking myself in a car trunk was one. Uh, I'm not even sure I told my wife about that one. Uh, I once ran into a burning building, a burning house, to see what that looked like. Uh, and I um, I think the, the strangest and most depressing one I have, I've been in a lot of prisons, and that's always depressing. I've, whenever I have to, I always promise myself I'll never go back in a prison, I'll never write another prison scene, but I always end up doing it, and for some reason, I can't use the old material. I have to go into a new prison. I just hate those places. Uh, you do not want to go to prison. I always tell the guards, remind me uh, never to commit a, cr- a crime, although nowadays maybe you don't have to do that, uh, but still, uh, prisons are, are bad places, um, but I think the most depressing thing I ever did was I visited a couple of uh, whorehouses, uh, brothels, let's call them, uh, in outside of Reno, Nevada, where it's legal, um, for my novel Damnation Street, which has a, a sequence uh, that takes place there, a kind of central sequence that takes place uh, at, a, at a Nevada brothel. And uh, I just went in and kind of pretended to you know, buy a drink like I was a customer, uh, packed I have to say, with uh, cross-country truckers, uh, the truckers are lined up outside these places. Um, very depressing, very sleazy. You'll be surprised. You'll surpri- be surprised to hear that a whorehouse is not. Uh, the most uh, savory place to be, uh, and I was—I—I I, got to tell you—it sounds old fogeyish, but it was true. I was so glad to get out of there into the air, uh, into the fresh air. But I—I I felt like I had to, you know, it's not the kind of place I hang out, and I felt I had to see what it was so I could write it. Uh, a lot of times you can write things by researching them. I'm not—I'm not a you know, big into, like, jumping off a cliff to see what it was like to jump off a cliff. I can also, I can usually find somebody who's done something, Uh, but this was something I felt I had to do for myself, and it was, um, it, it was haunting, sorry. Um... Hi Andrew, first I really enjoyed your interview with the heroic Tulsi Gabbard, even though she wouldn't let you pin her down on what her next moves will be. Earlier in the same show, you spoke about how Republicans and conservatives need to understand that the media is their enemy just as much as Democrats are, uh, as Carrie Lake does understand, but they fail, but the GOP fails to do this every time. How can would-be candidates better prepare for confrontations with the media? How can they, or anyone for that matter, get over the very natural fear of being denounced by the cool kids? Thanks, love the show. Uh, Those are two separate questions. You, You can't get over your fear of being denounced by the cool kids. You have to stop being afraid of being denounced by the cool kids. If you are worried about being one of the cool kids, you are already out of the game. You're done, you're finished. If you're one of these people who curses the New York Times but just can't, you know, but has daydreams that one day the New York Times is gonna say, ooh, you know, he's a good Republican, he's a good conservative, you're done, you're finished, you're through, just don't do it. You know, like that is that is not gonna happen uh, if you are telling the truth. The New York Times is gonna come after you unless they can use you uh, to attack somebody else. So if they can, if you go out and attack Donald Trump, the New York Times will interview you and talk to you, but the minute you are up against one of their guys, namely a Democrat, you will then become the devil again, so don't be a fool. So it's simple, you know, it's simple. Aside from that, once you get rid of that... If you want to prepare to go on a debate, uh, just remember they are going to ask you things that they're not going to ask your opponent. They are going to ask you gotcha questions. You know what the gotcha questions are. This is what, this is what drives me crazy. It drives me crazy when a guy, a Republican, is pro-life, and they say, well, what about in cases of incest? And he goes, ah, incest. Well, ah, well, yeah, yeah. you know they're going to ask you that question. You know they're going to ask, They're never going to ask the Democrat what about uh, you know aborting somebody because he's Pisces instead of Sagittarius. They're just to ask you about what if, you know, it's an 11-year-old girl who was raped by his father, you know, her father. You know, that. that's what they're going to do. So you know, when you look at left-wing talking points, when you look at your opponent's talking points, when you look at what the left-wing press is saying, that's what they're going to say to you on the debate stage because they are leftists too. They don't care about making money. They don't care about being famous. They care about getting you. That is what they care about. Uh, and you have to be ready for them. And if you're afraid of, of being disliked by them, you're done. Uh, From Garrett, I'm an aspiring storyteller in any form, books, movies, etc., but I'm having trouble pushing myself to write. Uh, I believe it stems from a fear that because I'm just getting started, my early work will probably suck, and I don't want to waste my favorite ideas on my amateur talent. Should I get over it and write anyway or keep them on the back burner while working on blander projects to hone my skill? Is it common to think you've come up with your best ideas only to be blindsided later by better ones? Thank you for your insight. Garrett, i got to tell you, any professional writer uh, would take this letter... And throw it in your face. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, writers write. You write because you have ideas. You put those ideas into action. You hone your craft. uh, And you write your ideas. If you don't write, you're not a writer. If you do write, you might be a writer. Uh, that's, That's it. You know, so like, you're afraid? Guess what? Anybody who looks at a blank page is afraid. Uh, if he want, if this is what he wants to do, uh, you know, this to save your ideas for when you get better uh, is ridiculous. Get better now. I mean, get be- good enough to write your ideas and do it. I mean, if you're not doing, if you're not doing the job, that that's not your job. If you're not writing, you're not a writer. And any writer will tell you this. I mean, uh, you know, they, they've, we've all heard. That, you know, I'm afraid of this. I'm a perfectionist. What if I this? What if that happens? What you know? And and every one of us faces that every single day that we sit down uh, to go to work. It never gets easier, except for I guess you have a history, you know, you can do it. Uh, but but still, this is this is the job. You know, it is it, it's a difficult job, and it is a very very difficult. It's a great job if you can make a living at it, but it's a um, it's a very very difficult profession. So um, yeah, do it or don't. But that's but that's the answer. If you if you do it. You're doing it. If you're not doing it, uh, you're not doing it. That's it. Um, Dear Mr. Levin, thanks for all you do and all the insight you provide, especially in regards to the arts and faith. I think that it was rather fortuitous that this week you were talking about the Renaissance on your show. I'm currently researching the Renaissance on my own time and I was wondering if you could give me insight on something that I've been trying to figure out. All through school, I was told that the Renaissance was caused by the Western world rediscovering the classical world and driven by humanistic thought leading the West away from the church. Lately, I've been thinking that the real story is more complicated than this, and I think that the main philosophy driving this period was not secular humanism, but instead was influenced more by Thomas Aquinas and the belief that God's transcendent nature can be discovered and glorified by us through our acts of discovery and artistic expression. do you think this way? If so, do you have any sources I can read that show this? And do you think that it is the loss of this philosophy in evangelical cir- circles that has caused the Western church to turn away from the arts? Uh, yeah, listen, This is there's no question about this. The, the Renaissance and the humanist uh, factor of the Renaissance had a PR campaign going. It, it included things like calling it the Renaissance. Calling what we now call the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages. The people in the Middle Ages didn't think they were in the beginning, of, in the middle of anything. Uh, it was the pe- the humanists in the Renaissance who said, well, first there was the Dark Ages, then there was the Middle Ages, and what was middle? It was the middle between the fall of the classical world, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, and the, the wonderful things that were happening now. But of course, that was all. All just PR. It was none, none of it was true. Uh, it was the humanizing force of the church. Much of the Counter Reformation. Much of the beautiful paintings you've seen uh, uh, during the Renaissance are uh, paintings that were made by the church, commissioned by the church to make. Uh, theological points that they wanted to make against the Protestants. Um, you know, yes, there was a humanism, humanist element. Yes, there was a breaking away from the church over time. Uh, but the Renaissance is the product of church thinking. Uh, science, the invention of science is a product of church religious thinking. Um, you know, and and yeah, were there other elements? Of course there were. Were there elements the church opposed? Yes, there were. Uh, but, you know, you you should be able to read any honest, description of the Renaissance and find this out. I mean, if you want to look at somebody who's just a partisan, look at the Catholic Encyclopedia or something like this, but there's no question about this. There's absolutely no question about it. And like I said, this whole idea of dark ages, middle ages, these were propaganda words, Renaissance, which means rebirth, uh, meaning the rebirth of the classical world. All of these were uh, propaganda words to push humanism and push a sort of anti-church agenda, but it was the church that created the minds that created, and the talents, in fact, that created the Renaissance. All of those things, like the Sistine Chapel, uh, were paid for by the church. I gotta stop there for non-members, but a members block is coming out. Non-members, so long darkness, hell, you know, you know the routine. I mean, so what can I tell you? However, if you get a strange habit of mind, you can stave off the Clavenless Week. Get a strange habit of mind. You will love it. It will be a good thing to have done, and you will be happy you did it as the series continues and gets even better. For members, stay tuned. Member block coming right up.